Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Hey, everybody. I got a great one today, you know, for a change. But this time, this time I mean it. The brilliant Dahlia Lithwick, award-winning writer on the Supreme Court and on jurisprudence, her fourth time on the podcast for a reason, for a reason. Not only has she won awards for her coverage of the high court for Slate, she's just a fabulous guest. And in this one, we uh, we go over the court's 2019-2020 term and its rulings in a number of very significant cases. And uh, I was on the Senate Judiciary Committee for eight and a half years. And even though I am not a lawyer, I did play one in a sketch. And I don't know if you're aware of the amount of prep you do at SNL to research a role you play in a sketch. Let's just say I was known for asking better questions in hearings than anyone else on the committee. For example, uh, okay, my colleague Amy Klobuchar, she's a good questioner, and remember she asked a, a very good question of Kavanaugh at his uh, the second part of his confirmation hearings, have you ever blacked out after after drinking and he said no have you and she was kind of taken aback and i think she handled it very gracefully but she said well okay so your your response then is uh, that you you haven't no have you and it just struck me that there are a lot of democrats afterwards lined up to ask questions and it seemed to me that the logical line of questioning was like Judge Kavanaugh, I noticed uh, when (laughs) uh, Senator Klobuchar asked you if you'd ever blacked out after you you were drinking, and you said, no, have you? And it just occurred to me that you might have been just a bit overly defensive. And you know what that said to me? That said to me, oh, I see, he's an alcoholic. And then I thought, or maybe he is. And then this, when she asked you a second time, you said, no, you. And then I said, okay, he is an alcoholic. Alcoholics are very, very defensive about their drinking. I also noticed that in your opening statement, you said that the four witnesses the FBI had uh, questioned had refuted Dr. Ford's allegations. Well, they really hadn't. They had just been asked whether they remembered a party 35 years ago that Nothing had happened to them, evidently, except for your friend, the friend that Dr. Ford had identified as being in the room with you, who, Mark Judge, wrote a book about being a teenage blackout drunk. And in that book, uh, there was uh, a teenage blackout drunk in the book named Bart O'Kavanaugh. So I guess my question is to you, uh, Judge Kavanaugh is, do you remember Bardo Kavanaugh? 
Do you remember? Uh, the blackout drunk, Bardo Kavanaugh in your class? Are you familiar? Do you remember him? Remember him? So anyway, that's, that's the kind of training that we'd get at SNL when you'd play a character in a sketch. Do I sound bitter? Do I sound bitter? I am not. Not in the slightest. Anyway, Dolly and I discussed the, uh, the court's term this year and also the travesty of uh, Trump's commutation of Roger Stone's sentence and uh, the fear we share for our nation's justice system and, and democracy. Also, Dahlia mentions her uh, podcast, Amicus, and an exciting one she recorded right before uh, COVID with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and all the survivors from her Harvard uh, Law School class, the nine women who started with her. And that drops July 21st on her podcast, Amicus, and I can't wait to hear that. And, of course, uh, all of us are thinking about the notorious RBG. Uh, she announced, just announced that she is being treated for liver cancer. She is a tough bird. She writes brilliantly, powerfully, and uh, she still works through the night. I went to an event about a year and a half ago at the Kennedy Center and spoke with her afterwards, and this was after the event. She was going to go home and work. She famously works through the night very often. Anyway, all of our thoughts and best wishes are with Justice Ginsburg. We need her very selfishly to make it through to January 20th. And if God forbid Trump wins to hang on for another four years, which I bet she could. She is a tough old bird and a brilliant one at that. So hang on, Ginsburg. Ginsburg, hang on. Boom, boom. Boom, 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 boom. Hang on, Ginsburg. Ginsburg, hang on. <sighs> well, we need Trump to lose. I have not yet read Mary Trump's book on her uncle. But you know what? I have always suspected that he has some personality problems. I don't know about you, but um, there seems to be something off uh, about him. Um, for one thing, he can't seem to ever admit that he made a mistake, which is why he continues to ignore science and, uh, handle this pandemic, uh, just as badly as it could possibly have been handled. And, um, you know, this is the American carnage. This is the American carnage. Uh, that's what Donald Trump has wrought. And, uh, goddamn, it's so important to get rid of this guy. Um, anyway, enjoy <laughs> my interview with Dahlia Lithwick. My guest today is uh, Dahlia Lithwick. This is Dahlia's fourth time on the Al Franken podcast, passing Andy Slavitt, former head of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, for the most times on the Al Franken podcast. Congratulations, Dahlia. So I, I win the Al Franken podcast? No. <laughs> Damn it. No. Damn it. The Al Franken podcast is a living, breathing thing. We have a running tally, and at the moment, you're in the lead, but, but you didn't win anything. Now, this is the... Fourth time you're on. It's the first time I've read your Wikipedia. Oh, dear. And I see that you keep a kosher home. I do. 
Let me ask you the first question as a Jew that I always ask someone who keeps a kosher home. Are you kosher outside the home? We are. Not like I will eat pasta at a restaurant. In fact, you and I have eaten pasta at a restaurant. So I will eat. How is that not kosher? Well, if you are really hardcore, say like my parents, you would not eat off dishes at a restaurant, even if it was salad. I am not that guy, but I I have kept kosher all my life. Yes. Okay. Well, your parents are ridiculous. (laughs) I will let them know you said so. Okay. Besides being a frequent guest on the Al Franken podcast, Dahlia has uh, quite an accomplished career in her own right. She was previously a frequent guest on the Al Franken show on Air America. (laughs) And I think you'll recall that on two of those occasions, we discussed the confirmation hearings of uh, John Roberts and of Samuel Alito. I remember it well. Uh, In addition to those accomplishments, guesting on the Al Franken Show and the Al Franken Podcast, you went to law school, am I right? Uh, You are correct. And then uh, some other stuff. Dahlia, of course, is one of the great writers and thought leaders on the courts and jurisprudence, writing for Slate, in fact, winning the prestigious Hillman Prize given annually to journalists, writers, and public figures who pursue social justice and public policy for the common good, which eliminates so many journalists, writers, and public figures. And uh, you want it, of course, for your analysis of the Supreme Court for Slate. Am I right? Yep. Thank you. And Dahlia is also a frequent contributor to MSNBC and has her own podcast, Amicus or Amicus. Or what does Justice Breyer call it? We, we have had this fight four times. He says the word amicus. That is his, that is his pronunciation of the Latin. He's probably correct. I, I call it amicus, and you should too. <laughs> yeah, he should retire. <laughs> but not until January 21st, okay? Okay. That's all I'm saying. Okay, uh, today we're going to talk about two things. Uh, this year's Supreme Court term. And uh, Donald Trump's uh, commutation of his longtime friend Roger Stone's 40-month sentence for witness tampering, obstruction, and making false statements. But you want to go to the Supreme Court first? Let's do the Supreme Court first, yep. Let's go first to, uh, let's just talk about these decisions. Uh, Now, Roberts played a big role this term. And when we talked back in 2006, during his uh, confirmation hearings, uh, Roberts said that the job of a Supreme Court justice is to call balls and strikes, right? That's Mm -hmm. a famous Mm -hmm. thing. I look at him and this over the years, and boy, does he not do that in my mind. He's like the fifth vote in all these 5-4 decisions. And, And you can give kudos for him for caring about the integrity of the court, or, or you can give kudos to him for playing a long game. But to me, this is like, tell me if, what you think of this analogy. Okay, calling balls and strikes. You, do you watch baseball? Are you a baseball fan? Huge baseball fan. Okay, so here's the situation. It's the fifth game of the World Series. Now, the home team is down three games to one. Okay. They're down by a run. They have bases loaded. It's the bottom of the fifth, and it's beginning to rain. There's a 3-2 count on the batter. Bases loaded, two out. The pitcher has a really good slider. The batter knows that, and the pitch comes, and it looks like it's going to be over the plate, so he starts to swing, and then he catches a spin on the ball, and the ball starts to curve down and away from him. 
And he knows that he's not going to hit this ball with his swing, so he tries to hold up. Okay. The pitch just just maybe hits the front edge of the plate, just maybe at the knees. So now Roberts, this guy tries to hold up his swing, but Roberts could call him out. He could call that a swing in the third strike, or he could call it a third strike because it hit, it hit the little edge of the plate. But if he calls it a strike, the World Series is, is over because it's going to rain. The forecast is going to keep raining. Five innings is an official game in baseball. He calls this guy out. The visitors win. They win their fourth game. The World Series is over. Now, does Roberts call that a ball or a strike? I think he calls it a ball, Al. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's sad, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if that's sad or not. But that's what I see. He's like, let's talk about these decisions. I, I think I, can I respond to your umpire thing just for one brief second? Before no. we do. <laughs> okay, go ahead. You go are ahead, go winning ahead. this podcast. Um, I, I think that what I would say just in response to the balls and strikes thing is that John Roberts... When he is elevated to chief justice, right, he is initially tagged to replace Sandra Day O'Connor. He's just going to be an associate justice. As you Mm -hmm. recall, Chief Justice William Rehnquist dies suddenly, and he is bounced right into the chief justice's seat. And I think that the only way to think about John Roberts, including the crazy locution of umpires and balls and strikes, is that he has two things that he is selling. One is you know, the conservative legal project that's been his life's work. That is, you know, he comes up through the Justice Department. He clerks for Rehnquist. He, no dispute that he wants all the outcomes that the owners of the ball club want. But he also has to protect all the umpires, the institution of umpiring and the legitimacy of it. And that is a job that attaches to him as chief justice in ways that are really different from if he were an associate. And so I just think that when he did the balls and strikes sales pitch, what he was defending was not just the conservative legal project and this myth that it is technical and logical and that there is this magic strike zone and everyone knows what it is. And that's what he was also protecting the myth of the fair umpire on both sides, left and right. And that's what the balls and strikes thing was. It was an amazing sales pitch for the legitimacy of umpiring. And that's totally separate from the conservative outcomes he wants. And I just think that's important in teeing up June Medical, because I think that you need to understand that this is a case about the legitimacy of umpires. It's not about the strike zone. Does that make sense? It does. Basically, this is almost an identical case to a 2016 case in in Texas. It's a carbon copy of Whole Women's Health. Whole Women's Health decided only four years, almost to the day earlier. And Whole Women's Health involved two regulations of abortion clinics in Texas. One that 
any clinic that performed abortions had to be retrofitted as a quote unquote ambulatory surgical center. That means they had to put in HVAC machines and widen hallways so you could put two stretchers that passed each other even though nobody needs a stretcher. All of the things that were designed so that clinics would close, that would put clinics out of business or pass on the costs of all that retrofitting to clients so that clinics would close or abortion would become prohibitively expensive. The other regulation in Whole Women's Health involved this admitting privileges rule that said that any physician who performed an abortion needed to have admitting privileges at hospitals within a 30-mile radius. And that, too, was just an effort to put abortion providers out of business because a lot, a lot of hospitals, for complicated reasons we can get into or not, will not give abortion providers admitting privileges. So Texas put those regulations into effect. It was very clear when it passed. A lot of legislators in Texas were spiking the football and saying, yay, this is the number of clinics we're going to close. There was no real argument that this was going to advance maternal health. The Supreme Court in Holman's Health struck both provisions down. Justice Breyer uh, writing for the majority. At that time, it was a 5-3 decision because Antonin Scalia had died. So Justice Kennedy and the four liberals said there's no medical benefit to these regulations. They're unconstitutional. Louisiana, as you said, passed the exact same rule, exactly the same, not the um, clinics rule, but the uh, that providers had to get these admitting privileges. The district court said, no, this is the same case. This is nuts. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said, no, this is different because Louisiana starts with an L and Texas starts with a T <laughs> or something like that and upheld the regulations. So the case comes back to the Supreme Court four years later. And John Roberts, the institutionalist, the protector of umpiring, says in his majority, in his opinion, joining, he joins the four liberals. Um, and he set, writes for himself separately, a concurrence that becomes the law of this case. And he says, Holman's health, I dissented in that case. It was wrongly decided. I still think it's wrongly decided. But this is the same damn case. Go away. And that becomes the fifth vote to strike down the Louisiana regulations. And so it's basically, it's sort of a stare decisis. A hundred percent. Yep. And he writes okay. that. He writes that. And Kavanaugh, uh, this, this, according to uh, the chief justice, was settled, settled law. He, he, he ruled the way he did on stare decisis. Kavanaugh went the other way, right? Right. Uh, although... Worth pointing out, all of the conservatives, every single one of them, wrote a dissent, each more overheated than the next. Kavanaugh's <laughs> dissent was sort of interesting because he didn't say Roe v. Wade should be overturned. He just said, you know, these doctors should go ahead and try again to get admitting privileges in Louisiana. And, you know, if they all are denied their admitting privileges, then we can go ahead and hear this case and determine that it's maybe or maybe not unconstitutional. In other words, he was willing to let the thing play out so that there was one clinic left to serve the entire state of Louisiana. And then uh, he would make a decision. I think Susan Collins later said, you know, he didn't say he wants to overturn Roe. He just wanted to let the thing play out get to the point where there's one clinic or zero clinics in Louisiana, and then make a decision about whether it was unconstitutional. 
So one clinic would have to handle, what, 10,000 women who seek abortion services every year in Louisiana? Is that right? And and a state that has unbelievably high outcomes for just really poor maternal health, you know, poverty, race. Uh, this is not a state in which... Uh, first world care for maternal health is uh, a, a big uh, scorching victory. So this is a state that desperately needs better maternal health, especially in a pandemic. I think you're quite right. Kavanaugh was willing to say it's just way too early for the court to get involved. Let's uh, see how this plays out, despite years of efforts, by the way, uh, on the part of these abortion providers to get these admitting privileges, uh, the district court is painstaking, goes through every one of them and says why this doctor and this doctor and this doctor cannot get admitting privileges. And Kavanaugh, again, doesn't say Roe v. Wade should be overturned, just says let this play out. And so Susan Collins, when confronted with the fact that her boy, her golden haired boy, uh, dissented in this case, said, well, he didn't say Roe v. Wade should be overturned. It reminded me of that case where he was a circuit court judge and he was trying to slow down this uh, young woman who was an immigrant right yep yep who needed an abortion and he just kept delaying it delaying it and delaying it I think this was something he did as an advertisement for Supreme Court you're exactly right that was his audition tape uh, that was a a new uh, Trump administration policy that was tracking Uh, young women in shelters who uh, were seeking to terminate pregnancies. And, uh, you know, obviously the rates of rape uh, in those cases are staggering. And uh, a new administration policy that was making it impossible for these young women, these Jane Doe's, to terminate pregnancies. And you're exactly right, because the effect of his slow walking that litigation was that it was going to very quickly get to the place where abortion in Texas was illegal, and they were out of luck. And it's exactly the same model where you pretend to be mulling it over, and you just want one more kick at the can, and maybe these women just need better information, and a better guardian ad litem, and better choice. Choices, but the actual practical effect is running out the clock so that they cannot get the relief that they desperately want. Which, if you ask me, seems worse. Yeah, it's totally I mean, cruel. It makes him a worse human being, and especially since that was the audition. That was the audition, and he wrote language in those opinions that had nothing to do with the legal question at hand, but was just dropping breadcrumbs about how fantastically anti-choice he would be at the court. (laughs) And, you know, Susan Collins, faced with that, insisted that he was not going to upset precedent. Okay, we're going to take a break uh, now, and we'll be back with Dahlia Lithwick. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. Okay, it's time to commit. 
2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, so let's go to uh, another... (laughs) Another decision, uh, Bostock v. Clayton County, which is about LGBT rights in the workplace, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Why why don't you tell us what that was and what your take on it, on that decision was? Bostock was two consolidated cases that were brought by gay workers who claimed that they were fired from their jobs uh, for being gay. Uh, expressly so, and then consolidated with another case uh, that was brought by a transgender worker fired from a funeral home uh, for uh, coming out and saying to her co-workers that she was transgender. Uh, Tragically, she died before these decisions came down. The question was a pretty technical question about whether Title VII of the Civil Rights Act that is supposed to protect workers against discrimination uh, on the basis of sex swept in LGBTQ employees. Uh, I think it had been understood to do so, but the Supreme Court had never definitively proclaimed one way or another. And the Trump administration and the employers here were claiming that uh, sexual uh, orientation or status as a transgender worker is not uh, something that is protected from firing on the basis of sex. Uh, And here is your boy, Neil Gorsuch, uh, writing this barnstorming opinion, joined by John Roberts and the court's liberals, saying, of course, uh, this is discrimination on the basis of sex. Of course, if you are fired because you are gay or transgender, uh, that is just as much uh, uh, discrimination on the basis of sex as being fired because you're a woman or because... Citing to a case, Price Waterhouse, uh, you're a, a woman who doesn't present as feminine enough. And Gorsuch does this deep, deep dive into how you interpret the language of Title VII and essentially says, go away with your trying to pull out your Ouija board and decide what the framers in the 1960s were trying to intend and trying to protect. The plain meaning of the words, the text itself says, of course, this sweeps in gender identity and uh, LGBTQ status and transgender status. So it's a huge resounding win for uh, LGBTQ workers across the country, including in states that don't have state civil rights protection. That's a lot of states. Yes, it's, yeah. it's, it's a lot of states had no protections. And it's a, just a sweeping win that says if your employer fires you for being gay or for being transgender, you now at minimum have the right to bring a suit under Title VII, they can still lie and invent some other pretext for your firing, but at least you have that 
kind of basement protection. And so I think this is one of those places where, remember I said Gorsuch proved to be kind of an interesting character this term. That is probably emblematic of a way in which he surprised a lot of people because I don't think folks looking at that oral argument, most people did not think uh, he was going to be a thumb on the scale to protect uh, gay workers. I wrote you, I texted you pretty much immediately after this came down, and uh, I texted you that I thought Alito's dissent was very gay. (laughs) Yes. Would you like to discuss that? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought it was very gay. Hey, do you get to, because you write about the Supreme Court, do these guys talk to you every once in a while? Uh, I think I have talked to all of the justices at one time or the other. I've certainly met, I think, all of them at one time or the other. And we just did, um, it's going to come up on Amicus or Amicus or Amicus uh, in the next week. But we just did a really cool interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and all of her surviving classmates from her Harvard Law School class, the nine women who who started with her. So that right before COVID, uh, I got to sit down with her and talk to her about that. So stay tuned. Wow. Yep. I want to hear that. That's that's great. When is that? When is that? I think it drops July 21st, but um surprising no one at all and will surprise you least of all. Um all of her classmates <laughs> describe her uh even as a 1L at Harvard getting up in the middle of a dinner party that she and Marty were hosting to just go to her room and study. So And she works through the night. Through the night does not sleep. Um but it was it was really important to us because, you know, in all the movies, they show these random other eight women. Uh, and we wanted to sort of track down who they were and, and build a little archive, finding out what they did with their lives. So, yes, that's a long answer to um, I have had the privilege of, I think, interviewing or talking to almost all the sitting justices. So when next time you get to talk to Alito, <laughs> okay. can you tell him I was ta- Al Franken? said he thought your dissent in uh, Bostock was very gay. It, it will be top of top of my list. I, I will say he did the thing <laughs> that would have been, Al, the thing that Justice Scalia did if he uh, had been writing, I think, in this case, which is just append dictionary definitions <laughs> from the 1960s, page after page after page of dictionary definitions to make the point that no one uh, who uh, signed on uh, to Title Seven intended for it to, to protect gay workers and then really, like you say, with both feet jumps in and talks about diagnostic criteria and the deep antipathy to gay people at the time and how prevalent it was. So it it is a tour de force of, of something. I love that. he went. People just hated gay people then. <laughs> exactly. That couldn't have been their intention. Do you, do you know how homophobic the entire Congress was at that time? Yep. There's a lot of that. A lot of that. nice stuff nice stuff here's one uh this is uh, little sisters of the poor versus pennsylvania and this is on contraception and uh, it uh exempts employers who cite religious or moral objections to the part of obamacare that requires them to provide coverage from contraception here's my theory and i want you to talk to this because you watch the court all the time i have this theory that they picked the organization Little Sisters of the Poor with the idea like, how can they rule against Little Sisters of the Poor? Is is there anything to that? 
it's almost worse than that. And and folks <laughs> folks should follow. I know, right? Worse than picking nuns is is this. Folks should follow Marty Lederman on Twitter. He's amazing. He's he's a, a law professor who who thinks about this really hard. And he's been making this point, and nobody's been listening. But I think it's important. Little Sisters of the Poor are not originally in this case at all. This is these are a, a <laughs> set of cases that are consolidated. Uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Um, they're not parties to this case. They actually ask to join this case, uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor, uh, for the reasons you're you're flicking at, because they're such sympathetic plaintiffs. Um, and one of the paradoxes of this case is that they themselves are actually exempt from the accommodation, that uh, there's a, a nationwide injunction that keeps them from having to pay into their insurance to provide contraception to their employees. So it's not even just that they asked to be in the case, and then they become, if you read sort of the the press on this, uh, at least from the conservative side, they become the face of this case. You know, these poor nuns who really are doing unbelievable work in the COVID era to help people have dignity at the end of life. But they're the face of this case and they are in no way impacted by it. So it's it's nuts. And um, it's just doesn't <laughs> oh, get this any is attention. just my suspicion. Yeah. But yep. this is hilarious. Yep. It is so much worse than I thought. So they're exempt anyway. Yes, yes. And Marty Lederman, like I say, has been banging his head against the wall saying they are not <laughs> affected by this. They are not subject to this. Why are they the face of this case? Um, and it's it's deeply weird. Why do they have standing? There is, you know, because they were joined to the case because um, the courts let them come in as, you know, plaintiff interveners, I guess it's called. And they uh, become, even though they are not the providers in this instance who are brought the litigation. So once you have, you know, sweet nuns who I, I think Paul Clement, who defended them um, the last time they were at the court, came on my podcast and said, you know, this would be like asking them to hand out condoms, you know, from the front room uh, as they're doing, you know, the work of their order. Celia Law v. the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This one really interests me, and I want to ask you about this because I'm wondering about Chevron, and I'm wondering about this is them trying to get rid of the administrative state. That's is that exactly right? Right. Yep. The CFPB has a uh, has one as the head of the CFPB. It's not, it's not an agency like the FCC that have a whole bunch of commissioners. This is, the, there's the guy who heads, or the person who heads the CFPB. And he can't be fired by the president except for cause under the statute. You know, the Trump administration wants to be able to fire anybody without cause <laughs> because of the unitary executive. Is that right? Yeah, the idea is they serve at the pleasure of the president and these efforts uh, in all of these regulatory entities to insulate people from the political headwinds that would mean, you, you know, you turn over every time there's a new uh, administration. The idea was they serve longer terms than that, and they're not subject to firing just at the whim of the president. And yeah, the claim here is, of course, they are. <laughs> the president can fire whoever he wants, whenever he wants. As you said, this means that, and by a five to four margin, the court signed off on that. 
And again, I think there was an effort to cabinet and say it's just this entity and never mind other agencies that look similar to this. Uh, This is a really narrow decision about the CFPB, but Uh, I think the dissenters said it's just a short hop from this to saying that any regulatory entity, uh, all of its uh, officers serve at the pleasure of the president. And and, and I I brought up the Chevron doctrine. What is it called? Deference. I think the idea is that it's Chevron deference. Yeah. Deference. So Chevron deference. Can you explain that real quickly? So what the significance of that is and what it and what it is? I think it's just the principle that the courts have tended to defer to agencies, to the expertise uh, accumulated in agencies, uh, that they kind of know what they're doing in the regulatory uh, space and that the court tends to hugely defer to agencies to set their own policies and priorities. And this is a part of dismantling the regulatory state uh, involves doing away with Chevron deference. You know, during the uh, Gorsuch confirmation hearings, the Republicans started bringing this up. Uh, Ben Sass from Nebraska started saying things like, uh, you know, on the Affordable Care Act, uh, all those regulations were written by uh, Health and Human Services. And really, those should have been written by Congress. And I was thinking, like, are, are you kidding me? Are you crazy? We passed the Affordable Care Act in uh, 2000, beginning in 2010. It really didn't take effect till 2014. Because the regulations had to be written by HHS. We can't get anything done in Congress now. At that time, we could barely get anything done. They can't do anything. They can't do anything. And the idea that Congress would write the regs of something like that, not the agencies, is is just insane. It's insane. And I, I might just add, we're in the midst of this catastrophic pandemic where one would think that if we've learned nothing else, it's that federal agencies really matter and it really matters that they function well and with expertise (laughs) and that they function well in a way that is buffered from politics. I mean, you'd think that at that moment, it might be a good time to say, hey, maybe all regulatory agencies don't suck. Uh, And yet, here we are. Okay. uh, Dreamers. This is uh, Department of Homeland Security versus the Regents of the University of California system. This is interesting because this seemed to be Roberts and the others saying like, oh, come on, you guys. You know, you can't hand in a paper where you didn't check your spelling and didn't do any any of the work and do any, study anything. This is ridiculous. Yeah, I think for me, the shorthand of this case is the same, Al, as the shorthand for the census case last year when there was, folks will recall, an effort to put this <laughs> citizenship question on the census that ostensibly was being done, I think, to what, to to shore up the Voting Rights Act or something, but it was in fact being done because like Wilbur Ross wanted it and then they created all these pretexts and it was just just hack, hack, hack work on top of hack work. And John Roberts at the time said, 
you know, and lawyers were quitting. Government lawyers couldn't bear to get up and make the lies anymore. It was so embarrassing. And John Roberts at the end of last term essentially said, lie to me better. Like if you're going to come and say you need to put this question on the census and it's that the Justice Department wanted it and it's essential for the Voting Rights Act, then just do better lies. And that's exactly what happens. This And he throws in with the liberals. In that case, it's exactly what happens uh, with this rescission of, of DACA. More or less, the Trump administration initially, first of all, Donald Trump would say, I love the Dreamers. The Dreamers are amazing. Many want to protect them. And then rescinded DACA by way of a tweet. And then the tweet was followed up with just dumb pretextual memos saying, here's why we have to do this. And the reasons were all dumb. And then I think Kirsten Nielsen came up with a slightly less dumb rationale. But the whole thing was just dumb. And there is this Federal Administrative Procedures Act that says, like, don't don't do stuff dumbly. I think it says stupidly. Stupidly or just hackishly, right? Sloppy, bad spelling, check your footnotes. And so this was another unforced error, one of many, many, many unforced Was this a Sessions uh, vestige? Yes, this was a session, a full-on Sessions screw-up. Um, and they just did it poorly. And when, by the time it got to the U.S. Supreme Court, John Roberts more or less said, if you're going to rescind DACA, find some good reasons for it. Don't do it badly and then tack even dumber stuff to it to try to clean it up. And in some sense, Al, I, I put this in the bucket where I put June Medical, the abortion case, which is... Louisiana, if you want to regulate abortion providers out of existence, I am all in on the project, but just don't lie. Like, don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. I think that that is like could be if they still had the decals, you know, like the the chief justice um, armband that that uh, Rehnquist used to have. I think it would just say, like, lie better, lie better. I will give you what you want, but just don't lie badly. And that, I think, is the coda to the DACA case. Well, hopefully we, we will have a different administration and uh, DACA will, will continue. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the commutation of Roger Stone's uh, sentence by President Trump. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. We're back with uh, Dahlia Lithwick as a way of segueing to... Uh, Stone and the commutation of a sentence. Uh, let's talk about the, the finances, uh, looking at Trump's finances. 
explain what happened. And I, the question I have is, can Vance resolve this quickly and look at this stuff before the election? Uh, so it's two separate cases. One is, as you say, Cy Vance. We've got a grand jury in New York doing an investigation. We don't quite know what they're looking at. We do know that it's something to do with Donald Trump's finances, something to do with these uh, payments that were made to Stormy Daniels and other folks, uh, just a lot of hinkiness that was being investigated by a grand jury. And they subpoenaed, not from Trump, but from Trump's financial, uh, uh, you know, his accountants and banks, uh, a whole bunch of documents to, to see what had gone on. At the same time, there were a bunch of congressional committees trying to do oversight, saying, you know, either we're trying to reform the ethics laws or Adam Schiff's committee saying we're trying to make sure that uh, foreign governments are not uh, getting involved in our electoral process. So legitimate grounds that various congressional committees saying they wanted to put laws into place, they couldn't do that without same thing, Mazars and Deutsche Bank and other lenders trying to figure out what had happened. Donald Trump, as you'll recall, is the first president who doesn't, in decades, who doesn't show us his taxes. So the case really is uh, a question about whether third parties, not the president himself, there's no claim of executive privilege, uh, third parties can conduct some kind of oversight. And the court decides slightly different things in the two. As you said, I think Vance is a kind of resounding defeat for Donald Trump. It, there are five justices, John Roberts and the liberals, saying, of course, the president is not immune from uh, state grand juries uh, seeking to subpoena their papers. And uh, as you say, there's this weird, I'm kicking it back to the district court, and the district court can hear more of Donald Trump's objections, but certainly his claim that was made at the Second Circuit, his lawyers saying essentially he can do whatever he wants, he can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, he can never be touched or investigated, his family can't be investigated, pre-presidential acts can't be investigated, all that is wrong. That's Chief Justice Roberts. And as you say, this gets kicked back to the lower courts. The congressional one doesn't fare as well. There we have, uh, it looks like this new fuzzy four-part test that congressional committees are going to have to go back, again, go back to the lower courts and make a better showing, he says, of why they need to get their hands on these documents. So on the immediate question of whether in the Vance case, the grand jury can get their hands on these records before the 2020 election, I think we're already seeing that there's going to be an attempt uh, to go back to the lower courts and fight it out. I don't think Donald Trump can satisfy the even the new Roberts test of this higher showing of why he gets to hide them. But grand juries are bound by secrecy. And the idea that someone is going to leak or we're going to see these documents in time for the November election, I think is a long shot. And I think it's fairly clear, again, Congress is trying to get busy and meet this high standard, this new higher standard of what they need to show in a district court to get their hands on the documents before the election. I think, again, it's a real, real long shot that anyone is going to see anything before November. So the grand jury can't indict and then they can release stuff well, you know, that's a, a, a question about whether, and there is this longstanding question about whether presidents can be indicted while they're still sitting presidents. And you may recall that's one of the reasons Bob right, Mueller sure. 
the felt Mueller. his hands yeah. were tied. I'm mad at Mueller. Okay, let's uh, <laughs> let's go to. Speaking of being mad at Mueller. Yes, let, let's go to Roger Stone. This to me is it's just sickening. It's just sickening because basically, this is a president commuting the sentence of a guy who lied to protect the president, right? Yep. <laughs> Are we done? Now, <laughs> that is crazy. You know, remember when the, the sentencing judge sentenced Roger Stone, she said, this is not uh, me uh, sentencing him <laughs> for, uh, you know, his his politics or or his association with this president. I am. I she am. was unbelievably great. Can I read from it? Yep. Yeah. It's an. It's an, It's perfect. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Wow. Here's some of this. Uh, he was prosecuted for covering up for the president. This effort to obstruct the investigation was deliberate, planned, <laughs> uh, not one isolated event, and conducted over a considerable period of time. And Stone lied and sought to impede production of information to whom? Not to some secret anti-Trump cabal, but to Congress, to the elected representatives of both parties who were confronted with a matter of grave national importance. I'll cut to the chase at the end. She says, sure, the defense is free to say, so what? Who cares? But I'll say this, Congress cared. The United States Department of Justice and the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia that prosecuted the case is, is still prosecuting the case cared. The jurors who served with integrity under difficult circumstances cared. The American people cared, and I care. This is about a guy lying and then tampering with a jury <laughs> to cover up for the president. Yeah. No, I think I, I think that this is a, the only thing in some sense that needs to be lashed to what the president just did is Judge Berman Jackson's words saying, I'm not punishing him for Trumpism or Trumpist speech, blah, blah. I'm punishing him because he did the thing that Michael Cohen went to jail for. <laughs> you know, he broke the law to protect this president. And as you just read, all of these people, including the totality of the justice system and the Justice Department, rely on the truth of that being punished. And the idea that the sentence is commuted for doing exactly the thing, which is lying to protect the president. I mean, the amount of self-dealing that we saw with this commutation is unbelievable. He rewarded a person who distorted the justice system and tried to thwart the justice system to benefit himself. It's a perfect circle of grift. It's unbelievable. I, I agree. Let me ask you this. So after let's hope that Biden wins the election. So now he's a private citizen, so now you can indict him. This feels to me like he basically held out, I'll commute your sentence if you don't talk. Is that, that's a fair conclusion to draw, isn't it? I think so. And I think it's kind of the thing that Roger Stone said, right, last week. Where he that's was right. Like, Dude, I didn't talk. I'm gonna, can I get my, I mean, it, it, it was put into words. Now, that to me 
seems illegal. That seems prosecutable. That seems like you can't do that. You can't hold out. If you don't talk, I'll commute your sentence. And everyone knows what this was. There's no question what this was. Can't, uh, you're, you're the lawyer. You're the uh, jurisprudence analyst. Can this be prosecuted? And why wouldn't it be? I mean, I think it certainly looks to me as though, I mean, not just prosecuted, but one could imagine in a second, in the event that Trump won again, uh, that it's another impeachable offense. Uh, I don't think there's any question that this is destabilizing the entire, you know, legal system, the Justice Department, uh, the court system, uh, the investigatory arm of the Justice Department, uh, all in order to protect somebody who protected him. This is just mob-like. So I, I don't think there's any question that this is illegal. I'm just reading this really interesting um, article in The Atlantic, uh, actually claiming that even the commutation is unconstitutional because the pardon power doesn't allow the president to commute the sentence of somebody who was involved in something for which the president himself was impeached. Uh, so, you know, that that impeachment clause that the president can't uh, commute uh, the sentence of someone tagged to an impeachment. It's not just that he can't commute the sentence of someone who is impeached, but that this is exactly the conduct that was at the core of president's own impeachment, uh, this kind of grifting, qu quid pro quoing, and that even the commutation itself is unconstitutional. So I don't know if I understand it fully, but I think it's an interesting problem that the thing that the president has now done is just another iteration of the thing for which he was properly impeached. And it's it's just in a world of me saying to you over the years, so bad, this is just so, so bad. It's so bad. My reaction to that argument in The Atlantic, which I haven't read, but is that he wasn't impeached for Russia and collusion. He was impeached for Ukraine, which they could argue, no, 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 no. He, <laughs> he was corruptly <laughs> commuted, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's legal <laughs> or something. I don't, how can this possibly be legal? I mean, I don't think it is, but I think this goes back to, you remember when Ian Bassin and I were on the show and we talked about how there is such a, a profound slippage between what is a norm and what is a law and what the Constitution says, and then just all the crap that is none of those things that is just so unthinkable that we haven't... <laughs> you know, put it into a, a framework. And I think this is that. I mean, this is, like I said, this is just straight up how mob bosses uh, protect themselves. And so hopefully if we ever regain sanity, there will be a, a, a big reckoning about the failures of both the legal system and the impeachment system and you know, the whole architecture built by the framers uh, to keep somebody who's just grifted his way, threatened his way, rewarded uh, his allies who lie for him. Uh, all of that needs to be rethought. And it, it, this is a good 
place maybe just to remind folks that when Ian and Bass and, and I were on the show last It was a great, by the way, that was a great, very proud of that podcast. You guys are terrific. And I would recommend to anyone listening to this to go back to that because it, uh, it was exactly about this, which was the threat to our system. Yeah, and, and I think just the one thing that I would flag, because again, I don't think it's gotten nearly enough attention in the, the mayhem of day-to-day life, but the stuff we were warning about then, you know, that what turns into the firing of Jeffrey Berman, you know, in the Eastern yeah. District, the, the the firing, the sidelining of Jesse Liu um, in D.C., you know, the the rejiggering of the apparatus of the Justice Department and the power of federal prosecutors so that in line exactly with this stone commutation, the story being told is that everyone who ever convicts a a Trump consigliere is part of this deep state plot. By the way, all that language trotted out again uh, around the commutation. But the fact that the Justice Department is being dismantled and rebuilt to protect Trump cronies and to go after people who spent their lives for four years investigating Trump, that is so scary-ass terrifying, and it's just not getting the attention it needs. It, it, it just seems to me that a change in administration and from this unbelievably corrupt, pernicious administration to <laughs> to a normal one would would do a lot to repair, wouldn't it? I, I think so. But I also think, you know, and I think this was Ian Basson's point when we spoke last, that what we've learned is that soft norms, once they're destroyed, need to be bolstered. And that even if you have people of good character working in good faith at the Justice Department, yes, it will go a long way to reinstilling confidence. But I think that we just have to look at the ways that systems broke down and that systems, you know, at the soft points were distorted to really, really harm uh, folks like Alexander Vindman and uh, all of the That is so disgraceful. Yep. I hope he can, you know, January 20th, come back and serve as a colonel and get the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his valor. Hey, Lieutenant Colonel, you're back if you want to be. And also you're getting this Presidential Medal of Freedom. I think that'd be a good gesture on January 21st. I agree. Now, the Trump people aren't going to disappear. And I don't know what these Republicans in the Senate are going to do, I mean, we we don't know what's going to happen four months from now. So we don't know. We just don't know. Right now, Trump's been digging himself a hole and continues to dig. As I said, I thought he had all the racists, but he's doubled down on that. And I don't know what the hell he thinks he's doing, but I'm I'm scared about suppression of votes. Um, I'm scared about a lot of things. But... Uh, other than that (laughs) well thanks yeah (laughs) thank you Al thank you for having me have a good summer 
Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? fold and now when you read them as an adult you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin we have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today join me dj and my trusty turntable baby scratch as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast once upon a beat wondry and tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed music field weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet it's once upon a beat follow once upon a beat on the wondry app or wherever you get your podcast you can listen to once upon a beat early and ad free right now by joining wondry plus in the wondry app or wondry kids plus in apple Podcasts. once upon a beat